We are looking in the Gospel of Matthew. For those of you who would like to follow along, we're in chapter uh, 20. And when I was living in uh, the San Francisco area years and years ago, the local uh, American football team, which I know only probably a few of you uh, may be even aware of, uh, of what American football even is, was called the San Francisco 49ers. And they were quarterbacked by this guy. He was one of the best quarterbacks of his generation. His name was Steve Young. And you don't have to know anything about American football, but I can just tell you that the, the quarterback is probably the most, well, he is the most important player on the team. He has to be very smart. He has to be very athletic. And he has to be very, very tough. Because quarterbacks were often the most injured players on the team because the other team would actually try and hurt the other quarterback to get him out of the game. And this is back in the, in the 90s when Steve Young was playing and a lot of the rules were not in place yet to, to protect them. And Steve Young, on top of the fact that they didn't have the rules to protect the quarterbacks they have today, he was often known for playing without his helmet. Now and then when it got knocked off during a play, he would continue to run the play uh, oftentimes to his own physical detriment. He was a very, very tough quarterback. And he was well known for being very, very tough. So one morning I was watching TV. Uh, in the, uh, I went to seminary near the San Francisco area. That's why I was in the area there. And he was on TV and he was giving an interview. And he was talking about his childhood and how he became a professional football player. And he told this story that when he was a kid and he was playing in the children's leagues, kind of like Pop Warner is what it was called. It's like, you know, it's like how if you have here, you have football uh, teams that are kids and they kind of work their way up. He was told a story that when he was used to play these games, whenever the other team would hit him too hard or a player did something that was like against the rules, his mother would come out on the field and she would scold the other players for hitting her little boy too hard. And, and as he's telling the story, you know, I, I played American football when I was in high school and stuff, and it's a game that is your respect of your other teammates is built all around you being tough. And to have your mom come out onto the field and scold the other players for hitting her little boy too hard, I can tell you, anyone that's ever played the game would just rather have never been born than to deal with this kind of embarrassment. And in fact, it was so shocking when he told the story. I remember watching it, and just out of my mouth just kind of came, oh no. <laughs> but he said one of the things that he had to do after that, after his mom came out and scolded the other players, he had to win the game. Because if he was going to you know, maintain any kind of respect from his own players and the, and the people he was playing with across the, the line, he had to win. And so he actually became pretty good to try and avoid the embarrassment of having not only had your mom come out, but also to have lost the game. Ah, moms. You know, having had a good mom and married to a woman who also was a good mom and having pastored churches with young kids, I can give witness to the fact that it is the very rare mom that will not support her kids and be there for their kids, even if it embarrasses their kids because they want to be there for them. One of the most crazy things in my life, I didn't date much in high school because I was kind of awkward, but the one time I went to this homecoming dance, I went with this girl that I liked. Of course I liked her. I asked her to go. and She said yes, which is, you know, amazed me. And I got to the dance at the school and I locked my, the keys in the car. And uh, I had to tell this girl, you know, when we got done, I was like, I can't find the keys. They're in the car. So I called my mom. 
And my mom showed up in her nightgown. <laughs> Gave us the keys, unlocked it, and took off. And I never saw that girl again, at least on a social level. But mom was there. You gotta love your mom. Well, in the passage we're going through today, we meet an outspoken mother. And she petitions Jesus for the sake of her two little boys, who are actually men. She petitions them for their position in the kingdom of God. And Matthew places this story, I think somewhat ironically, right after Jesus gets done with this statement. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And right after he states that the last will be first, and the first will be last, we have this story about the mom that wants to make sure her little boys are first. So let's read it. It starts in Matthew 20, uh, verse 17. So right after he gets done saying, so the last will be first, the first will be last, we hear the story pick up again. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. So this passage begins with Jesus telling his disciples yet again exactly what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. There's no mystery here. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. And I, and I still find it fascinating when you read the gospel stories that when Jesus was indeed crucified, the disciples fell apart. For some reason, they couldn't put together what he was saying to the reality of what was going on. Either they thought he was talking metaphorically, or I think they were just so caught up in themselves that they couldn't really even hear him. Because it's right after he says this, after he tells them that he's going to be tortured and crucified, instead of thinking about him, instead of asking questions, well, how can we you know, help you in this time? It says this, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, who are James and John, came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. So right after he gets done saying, I'm going to be tortured, crucified, but I'll rise again. Instead of talking about that, she asks a favor. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. In other words, number one in authority, number two in authority under Jesus. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Notice he, he doesn't talk to her, he starts talking to them. You don't know what you're asking. He knows where this question is really coming from. It's not coming so much from mom. It's also coming from the kids, from the boys. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to him, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Indignity is kind of a funny word. Indignant means that they're trying to, they're trying to have some kind of uh, dignity, decorum, but they're really angry. They're not, they're not freaking out, shouting at them, but they're like, hmm. Because they've, always, they've had this question going back and forth among them for some time. This is just the first time someone's mom got involved in the discussion. And they're like, seriously, your mom's involved in the discussion now? And it seems like James and John, they don't care if their mom's involved. They're like, go for it, mom. 
But the others are indignant. Seriously? Your mom's getting involved in this? But again, James and John, they seem fine. And in fact, when Jesus asks them, can you drink of the cup I'm going to drink? They confidently say, we can. And you know at that point, they have no idea really what it means to drink of the same cup of Christ. Because the, Christ, the cup that Christ is talking about is the cup of suffering. And indeed, James, one of the brothers of Zeb, uh, sons of Zebedee, is the first of the apostles to be executed. He dies early in the book of Acts. And John, as far as we know as tradition goes, is the last of the apostles to die. So actually, these two kind of bookend the life of the apostles, with James dying early, he's beheaded early, he's put to the sword, they say. And then you have John at near the end uh, of, of that period of the apostles still living. Some believe that he even wrote the book of Revelation. But they have no idea what, what really Jesus is asking me. He says, can you drink of the cup that I'm drinking of? But Jesus knows what they're going to go through. He knows their future, and he tells them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places are for those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. So theologically speaking, this response of Jesus is another one of these places he makes a clear distinction between his role as the Son and the Father's role. And this is one of these places in the Scripture where uh, we get this kind of both-and thing about Jesus. He's fully God. He's fully man. Jesus is the very nature and character of God made flesh. But there are times when Jesus says, there are some things only the Father knows, like the last day. There are some things only the Father knows. And this place of being prepared, those are prepared by my Father. And I've talked to you often about this relationship between Jesus as God the Son and the Father as God the Father. It's kind of the ocean and the glass that comes from the ocean. And I've shared that in several sermons, discovering IBCD and other Bible studies, so we won't get into it today. But if you're new to IBCD or you have questions about that relationship, feel free to ask after the sermon. But for today, we then get into the main point where this is all going in this conversation. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So when Jesus talks to his disciples, he tries to bring it back around to what he had told them, what's going to happen in Jerusalem, that he's going to be crucified. And he brings it back around to be telling them that, listen, this is what leadership looks like in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, leadership is not about having lordly authority. In the kingdom of heaven, leadership is not about having the place where you can like, where it's very top down and people are there to support your place in leadership. Instead, you're to be a servant, a servant that's willing even to give his life just as, he, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Some refer to this as servant leadership. The idea is that in, being in leadership is not about, again, you. It's not about building up yourself. It's not about building up your authority, your brand. But it's about helping others get further along the path or higher up the ladder or however you want to think about it by being willing to serve. And it's a lesson which the church 
for the, for the millennia that we've been around, sometimes the church embraces this idea, sometimes the church seems to reject this idea because the lure of worldly leadership is very powerful. And for some people, it draws them. So I read a, a book one time that made the statement that power draws corruptible people because they want the power in order to manipulate things for themselves. So people who are easily corruptible tend to be drawn to power. And we've seen it when you look throughout history, church history, political history, there's a lot of corruption that takes place when you've got power. One of the biggest banes to development of countries around the world is the leadership, which is corrupt. If the leadership's corrupt, it can damage the development of an entire nation. And I've personally, I've never really understood that lust and uh, that desire for power and authority that some people have because, to be honest with you, leadership for me is a spiritual discipline. It's not a spiritual desire. And I've always struggled with the idea of people who wanted to get power in churches. Have you ever been in a church where there was a big power play that took place? Or you had someone who was in authority in a church that, that seemed to lord that over and abuse even others? I've never quite understood that. When people have drawn to power within a church, I've always wondered, what are you hoping to gain from this? Because the truth is, outside these walls, no one cares who's the pastor here. Outside these walls, no one cares who's the elder here or who's the deacon here or who is leading something here. You could cross that street and talk to the people walking along the trail and say, do you care who's in leadership at the church there? And first of all, most would be surprised there even is a church over there. And they wouldn't be that concerned about who's in leadership. They might be kind of uh, curious because, I don't know if you know it, but we're, kind of called, we're called the cult in the wild here. We're the cult in the woods because uh, people don't really know what the deal is. If you're not part of either the, the Protestant church or the Catholic church and you're the Freikirche, they kind of see you with suspicion. But they don't care who's in leadership here. And I think that's okay because... We're not to be seeking out leadership in a place of personal building up or personal authority. And when it comes to being a servant leadership, servant, a servant doesn't expect anything from their role. A true servant just serves because that's what servants do. They serve. Servant leadership, as far as I'm concerned, is really part of your personal and spiritual growth. This is one reason why we encourage you to take our leadership training and all that uh, when we do it once a year or twice a year, because it's really part of your spiritual growth. You can only stay a baby bird in the nest for so long with your mouth open and being fed. If you want to continue to grow, there's going to become a time where you have to put your faith into action. You have to begin to reach out and serve others. There's a growth element to serving others. And people who get bent out of shape because they don't feel like they're being recognized enough for their service in God's kingdom need to rethink why they're serving in the first place. One of my favorite passages that Jesus talks about service is this one. It's found in Luke. And it sounds kind of harsh, but I think there's a lot in there. He says, suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, now come along now, sit down and eat? Would he rather not say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? And would he thank the servant because he did all he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. 
Now, this seems kind of harsh. Jesus could do that sometimes. He could be a little bit harsh. and He could speak in exaggerated terms. But when you look at Jesus' own life, isn't this how he lived? Do you see Jesus living a pampered life? Jesus never lived a pampered life. Instead, most of the time he said, you know, the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. Foxes have their holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In fact, the only time that Jesus was really given something extravagant was when this woman came and broke this alabaster box that had perfume in it and began to, to cover his feet with it, and then she used her hair to wipe his feet. And Judas, Judas, got, who was the treasurer, or the, the money keeper of the, of the disciples, got all bent out of shape and said in a very self-righteous way, this perfume should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And yet in this extravagance, Jesus points out to Judas, she is anointing me for my death. This isn't just an extravagance being poured upon me for the sake of an extravagance being poured upon me. This isn't my GoFundMe private jet or my $36 million parsonage or my fleet of Rolls Royces to prove how important I am as a pastor or a spiritual leader. He's saying, no, this is to anoint me for my death. That is the only extravagance that you really ever see in the life of Christ. And don't get me wrong, there's certainly a place for encouraging and supporting people and others who are in leadership roles. But we have to remember one thing. No matter what our role in the kingdom of God is, and, I, and as a pastor, one of my goals, one of my things that I try and do is I want to develop other people. I want you to grow in your spiritual life, to grow in your spiritual formation. And sometimes that's the reason why you get asked, just speaking to you personally as people of IBCD, why you get asked to fill certain roles in the church. It's not just because we need someone who's a warm body in that position, but it's part of discipleship. If you want to grow, you have to serve. If you want to be like Christ, you have to serve. It's just part of, the, part of the process. And if you don't want to grow, you don't want to be like Christ, that's your business. But I'm just telling you that's why, as a church, we often will ask you to be involved in different areas of the church life because it is not just that we need that position filled, but this is a way people grow. But regardless of whatever role we play or whatever position we have, none of those roles or positions determine our value. Our value is determined in one place and in one place only, and that is in Christ. And this will never change. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how big of an influence you might have. The value that you have is found in Christ. And Christ found you valuable enough to die for. And that's the same for all of us. He died for everyone here. He died for the sins of all humanity. And that tells you that God places a very high value on your life. But he also places a very high value on the life of the person sitting next to you. And there's no role or position that can outweigh the fact that God himself was willing to empty himself of his glory Take upon himself the nature of a servant, a servant obedient even unto death. And as we seek to follow Christ, whatever position or role that we are brought into, he is still our model. 
And he was still the model who was willing to die for the sake of those who followed him. So there's a lot more that we can say about leadership in the kingdom of God, but we won't get into all that. But I will just remind you that during our leadership training seminar, one of the things that we do, well, the first session is really just about the heart of leadership because the heart is important. I would rather, personally, as someone who's been doing this for a while, I would rather have someone who's willing to learn but doesn't know very much but has a heart that is humble and willing to learn than someone who is highly skilled but is proud and is not willing to listen to anyone. Give me someone who has a heart that's willing to learn and they can be taught what to do technically. But someone that has the technical skills but a heart that is hard as stone or is focused upon themselves, there's not much you can do with that. And Jesus is our own example. Who did Jesus choose as his disciples? Did he choose the, the learned and the, the, the priests of his time? No. He, choose, he chose fishermen. He chose a guy that was a zealot, which is basically a, a kind of a Jewish terrorist at the time. He chose a guy who was a tax collector, who was hated by his fellow people. He chose Hebrew Jews. He chose Greek Jews. He chose people who were willing to follow and whose hearts were willing to join with the heart of Christ and to have him serve as their model. And may that be the same for us as well. As we move forward with where it is God wants us to go as a church, whoever he brings into leadership, one thing that happens at IBCD, because we have people come, people go, people come, people go, we need people who are willing to step up into places of leadership, even if they feel like they may not be fully qualified. If your heart is in the right place, you can be taught to be qualified. And so just keep that in mind. I don't know, I don't know many of you, you know, some of you are new, a lot of you are new over the corona time. It's going to be interesting when people who weren't coming during the corona come back. There's going to be like, a, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And that'll be great. But just to let you know, if you're only going to be here for two years or three years, don't think that, well, I'm just going to sit back and, and, and I can't really get involved because I'm only going to be here a short time. Once you've been at IBCD for six months, you're an old timer. Everything is sped up. And just know that there is a place for you to serve here as well, forever long as you're here. And you can say, well, I can't commit to two years or three years. Commit to what you can. Not because we just because we need you. We do need you. But because this is part of spiritual growth. To serve others is following the model of Christ. So may you serve him with the heart of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the teaching that you gave to the disciples all those centuries ago, which still is a challenge for us to hear today. I find it amazing that oftentimes in secular leadership stuff that, that they will come back to this idea of being a servant leader as if they've discovered it for the first time. And yet this is how you've been trying to guide your people in your church ever since you were on this planet. And Lord, we pray that you would guide us all, whatever role we're in, including myself, especially myself, that we would serve you with humility, we would serve you with grace. And in doing so, we would, we would become more like you, more in the model of who you are. And Lord, for those who may only be here for a short time, may they realize that they are the majority and how desperately needed they are too, not just for this church body, but also to take the unique opportunity 
to serve you in this unique setting that you have given us in IBCD. And Lord, as we do these things, may we keep our eyes on you, seeking you, glorifying you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.